all religions start in one of two places, and they all take one of two paths. And those two paths all arrive at two completely opposite destinations. That's Jesus' description of mankind's spiritual journey. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright. Have you ever heard the phrase, many roads, same destination? While that might be true when traveling to the grocery store, how does that claim hold up when applied to your relationship with God? Well, in a new four-part series titled, Two Gates, One Decision, Tom will examine the conclusion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. Christ's claim that He is the one and only way to salvation, righteousness, and relationship with the Father. But as you'll discover, the Bible says there are two paths you can walk by, each with one gate, one that leads to death, and one that leads to life. The question is, do you know which path you're on? Now, before we begin, here is Tom with some opening thoughts about this new series. Tom? You know, Bill, I think we have to start by admitting that this very concept that there is one way to God runs completely contrary to our entire culture. We live in a day and a cultural climate that rejects the concept of absolute truth. And because of that, they would deny the fact that Jesus is the only way to God. And yet that is explicitly what he does claim. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. And so as we begin this series, we have to sort of shift worldviews. We have to not think like the world around us, not be sucked into its mold and way of thinking, but we have to allow Christ to instruct us and to reshape our thinking in a way that reflects his perfect knowledge. Thanks, Tom. And friend, open your Bible now as we join our teacher here on The Word Unleashed. Most people on this planet believe in a divine being, even if it's one of their own making. They see themselves, for the most part, as on a spiritual journey. You ask the average person to describe what that spiritual journey is like, and you'll hear something like this. Well, they'll say, imagine that We all stand at the foot of a huge mountain, the very same mountain, and around that mountain on every side are countless trailheads. Each of those trailheads begins at a different place, and each follows a different route up the face of the mountain. But eventually, all of those paths arrive at exactly the same place, the mountain summit. And so it doesn't really matter what trailhead you choose or what path you take, because regardless, you're going to end up at the top of the mountain, and so will everyone else. Now, the point of that little parable that's so common in our world is this. All the world's religions start off in different places. The great monotheistic faiths of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam the Eastern religions of Buddhism, Taoism, Confucianism, the polytheistic faiths of animism, Hinduism, and ancestor worship, 
or the designer religions that are now crafted by every individual who makes his own little religion, regardless of whether you're talking about the great world religions or those created by individuals, they would say, they all start at a different trailhead. Each takes its own unique path up the mountain to God, but eventually when life is over, all the world's religions, they would say, end up at the same summit of the same mountain. Whether it's described as heaven or paradise or God's presence or nirvana, it's all really talking about the same place and the same reality. That's the common picture of man's spiritual journey that's told in today's world. But that is not the picture of man's spiritual journey that Christ drew. As he began to finish his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus drew a shockingly different picture of man's spiritual journey. He said, forget the illustration of a mountain surrounded by countless trailheads all leading to the same summit. Instead, he says, here's how you're to think of it. All religions start in one of two places, and they all take one of two paths. And those two paths all arrive at two completely opposite destinations. That's Jesus' description of mankind's spiritual journey. Today we come to the conclusion of this wonderful sermon. As we begin to look at it, let me just remind you of the structure and how this sermon flows Jesus begins the sermon in chapter 5, verse 3, and down through verse 16 of that same chapter, he describes the citizens of his kingdom. He describes what those who are a part of his spiritual kingdom are like in their characters. He lists what we call the Beatitudes. He says they are beggars in spirit. They realize they have nothing to offer God. They come to God pleading for his mercy. They, They come as mourning of their own sin. They come hungering and thirsting for righteousness. They come longing to be pure in heart. And so it goes. He describes their character in those things we call the Beatitudes. And then he describes their influence. If, if that's the kind of person you are, and you are that kind of person, if you're in Jesus' spiritual kingdom, to some extent and in some measure, then you will be like salt and light in the world around you. That's what the citizens of his kingdom are like. Now that brings us to the body of the sermon, to the real heart of Jesus' sermon. And that begins in chapter 5, verse 17, and runs down through chapter 7, verse 12. And here Jesus describes how those who are really citizens of his kingdom live the righteousness of the kingdom. They have a right relationship to the Scripture. That is, it's not merely external conformity to the Scripture, but they even care about obedience in the heart. They don't merely content themselves with not committing adultery. They worry and struggle with the issue of lust. They don't want that to be a part of their lives. They're not content merely to be those who don't murder. They don't want to hate others in their hearts. They have a right relationship to the Scripture. They also have a right relationship to God. They don't put anything else alongside of or above God. They worship Him only, not wealth, not anything else. And they trust Him in the daily affairs of life. They have a right relationship to others in how they interact, and we've just come through that section. That's the body of the sermon. 
What we began today, beginning in chapter 7, verse 13, and running down through verse 27, is really the conclusion of the sermon. And in the conclusion, Jesus presents several dangers related to the kingdom. There is, first of all, the danger of finding the wrong entrance in verses 13 and 14. There's the danger of false teachers in verses 15 to 20, and that's because false teachers will point you to the wrong entrance. And there's the danger of having a false profession of the true Christ and the true gospel, understanding who Christ is, understanding what the gospel is, professing that gospel, and yet being lost and on the wrong path. In verses 21 to 27, those are big dangers. And this is what Jesus addresses in the conclusion of his message. Now today, we're just going to begin this conclusion to his sermon. And what I want you to understand is, this is application. Jesus is applying his sermon to those who listen that day. He's applying it to us. It's also an invitation, as we will see. And it's a warning, a sober Solemn warning from Jesus Christ to every person who, who listened to or who now reads or hears the sermon. Now, why was that necessary? Why were these dangers so much an issue in Jesus' mind? It's because of the people who were listening to him. Let me remind you, because it's been a long time since we began the Sermon on the Mount, let me remind you who was there that day on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Luke tells us specifically in his gospel record. In Luke chapter 6, verse 17, here's how Luke describes it. He says, Jesus came down with his disciples. Now stop there and let me explain something. Remind you that the night before the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus had spent all night in prayer. That was the night that he prayed and asked the Father to help him choose 12 representatives, 12 apostles. So he prayed all night Then he gathered all of his disciples to him to the top of the mountain, and he chose 12 of them to be his official representatives, his apostles. And then the 12 and the rest of his disciples came down from the mountain. And it goes on to say, Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place, and there was a large crowd of his disciples. There's the first part of the crowd. There were a lot of people who were followers of Jesus Christ. And, Luke says, a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon, not only from Israel itself, but even from the Gentile nations around. In fact, look at chapter 5 of Matthew. Actually, start at chapter 4, verse 24. The news about him spread throughout all Syria. And so they bring all of these people who need healing, and he healed them. Verse 25, there were also large crowds from within Israel. Now, notice at this stage in Jesus' ministry, there were still these large crowds attached to him. That wouldn't always be true, but for now they were. And and these crowds, while they brought the opportunity for ministry, they also brought a, a great potential for confusion, spiritual confusion over who were truly his disciples And who were those that were merely attached to Jesus because of what he was giving them, healing their loved ones, giving them food, and so forth. And so, notice chapter 5, verse 1, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. So he goes slightly back up the mountain, and he begins to teach. And in his 
hearing, you have these two groups, a large crowd of his disciples and a large crowd of people who are attached to him because of what he's done for them, because of the miracles, the healings, because of their curiosity, their interest. So that's what compelled Jesus to preach the sermon. And throughout the sermon, Jesus keeps cycling through these issues. Who is just a part of the crowd and who are truly his subjects? Who are true citizens of the spiritual kingdom over which he reigns? And at the end of this sermon, Jesus provides them and us clear insight into who it is that has truly entered into his kingdom and who is not. And it begins by discerning if you came in at the right place, if you entered the right gate. Now, with that in mind, turn to chapter 7 and let me read our text for this morning. Matthew chapter 7 and two monumental verses, verses 13 and 14. This is what our Lord says. Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Now these two verses are absolutely foundational to understanding life in this world. In two short verses, just 45 Greek words, Jesus describes the spiritual journey of all of humanity. And he very clearly corrects the common mountain analogy. Instead of being able to start at all 360 degrees of the compass and eventually arrive at the summit, Jesus says 359 of those trailheads all lead to one destination away from the summit, and that is the eternal destruction of the soul. Only one trailhead of the 360 possible choices will ultimately enable you to arrive at the summit. Or to use Jesus' picture, there are only two gates, and each of those gates leads to entirely different paths, and each of those paths will lead you to an entirely different destination, to an entirely different eternity. Now, in light of that sobering reality, Jesus says, be careful which gate you choose. Make sure you enter the narrow gate. Now, as we begin to unfold what our Lord teaches here, I want you to notice that there are a series of contrasts in these two verses. First of all, there's a contrast between two gates. Then there's a contrast between two paths or roads. And then there's a contrast between two destinations. And finally, there's a contrast between two crowds who are on those two different roads. So there, there's this series of contrasts. This morning, I just want to begin to look at the first contrast, the contrast between the two gates. Because the heart of this passage is really about these two gates. Everything else really flows out from this. Notice how they're described. First of all, verse 13 speaks of the narrow gate. In verse 14, Jesus puts it this way, the gate is small. And then back up in verse 13, you see the other gate. It's called a wide gate. The gate is wide. So in the spiritual world, Jesus says, here's how I want you to think about it. 
there are these two gates and only these two gates. Picture them with me because this is the picture Jesus is drawing. One of them is this huge, massive, beautifully ornate gate. It is incredibly wide. It's like the gate you would expect to be at the entrance of the capital of one of the world's great empires. It's mammoth. The other gate is a small, simple gate, barely broad enough for a single individual to squeeze through. So here are these two gates. What do they describe? What do they picture? Well, first of all, consider the word gate itself. In the New Testament, the word gate is used in several different ways. It's used to describe the gates of a city. It's used to describe the gates of the temple in Jerusalem. It's used to describe the gates of a prison. And it's also used in Jesus' famous statement about building his church of the gates of Hades or the gates of death and the grave. Clearly here, Jesus isn't referring to literal gates. Instead, it's a simple metaphor. He's saying, listen, all men are on two spiritual paths. One of two spiritual paths are roads. And these two roads are leading in opposite directions to two totally different destinations. And once you understand that, the major point he's making with the picture of the gates becomes clear. The two gates simply represent the two entry points to these two spiritual pathways that lead to either eternal life or eternal destruction. They're the entry points. Now, also notice that there are only two choices where to begin your spiritual journey. Every person in this room is on a spiritual journey, and every person in this room started that journey at one of two gates. One gate will eventually lead to heaven. The other gate will eventually lead to hell. But there are only two gates. There are only two points of entry to these two paths headed in different directions. And every person in the world is on one of these two paths. By the way, that's every person here. You, in the mind of Jesus, are on one of these two paths. You say, well, I haven't chosen yet. If you haven't chosen yet, you've already chosen. In other words, you can't be neutral. There's nobody who hasn't yet found himself or herself on one of these two paths. You already have entered a gate. You remember this picture comes to us from the Old Testament Deuteronomy, Moses in Deuteronomy 30 verse 19 says, I set before you two ways, the way of life and the way of death. In Psalm 1, the psalmist says, there are these two ways, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. So you have already chosen one of these two gates and you are already on one of these two paths. So with that basic understanding, let's look at these two gates. First of all, consider the wide gate. The Greek word for wide in verse 13 refers to something that is great in extent from side to side. It's broad. It's, the word is also translated at times spacious. In the Septuagint, this word is used most often of the large open square that was at the center of ancient cities. And so here's a gate that is so big and so broad that it's as big as the open square of the town center. It's attractive. It's not confining. It's beautiful and it's really busy because a lot of people are going in this gate. There's a lot about this gate that you find immediately attractive, compelling. 
But obviously, in Jesus' parable here, the wide gate is the wrong starting point on your spiritual journey. The wide gate is the entry point to the path that leads to destruction. So here's the key question. Why does Jesus call it wide? The wideness of the gate implies that there are many different ways you can get on the path that leads to destruction. It's not confining. There's not one little area you must travel over. Instead, it's an expansively wide gate that allows you to come into that path from many different directions. For some people, the entrance to the wrong path is through apathy and indifference to spiritual things. I have no doubt there are people like that here this morning. You just really don't care. Just as soon not be here, and if you weren't compelled by something, you wouldn't be. Understand this. Notice Jesus doesn't say that you need to choose to be on the wide road. You need to choose the wide gate. He doesn't say that. He says, instead, you've got to choose to enter the narrow gate. What's the implication here? If you haven't entered the narrow gate, you have already entered the wide gate. You are already on the path to destruction. Every human being by birth, by default, has already walked through the wide gate and is already on the broad way. All you have to do to enter the wide gate is just don't do anything. Do nothing. And so people who are apathetic and indifferent Whether they like it or not, whether they feel like it or not, according to Jesus himself, if he were here, he would say, you've already walked through the wide gate. You're already on the broad way that leads to destruction. Just do nothing, and that path will lead you to destruction. There's a second entrance to the wrong path that leads to destruction, and that's human philosophies and ideologies. The world is filled with them. There's an interesting passage in in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, where Paul says, we fight, we're in a war of ideas. And he says, the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly. That is, they're not human. They're powerful. He's talking about the scripture, the ideas of scripture, the truth of scripture. That's the weapon with which we fight. And he says, we're fighting against fortresses. What's he talking about? What does he mean we're fighting against fortresses? Well, he explains it in the next verse in 2 Corinthians 10, 4. He says, we are fighting against speculations and every lofty thought elevated against the knowledge of God. He's talking about human ideas. We live in a world that is filled with human ideas that are exalted against the knowledge of God. Human speculations about what is true and what is right and how we should live. Philosophies like evolutionary naturalism, postmodernism, anti-supernaturalism, feminism, radical environmentalism, and on and on it goes. Our world is filled with these anti-biblical philosophies and ideologies. And understand this, those philosophies are merely new entry points into the wide gate. Another part of the wide gate is not only apathy and indifference and human philosophy, but also false religion. False religion will get you through the wide gate. You see, much of the width of the wide gate consists of damning false religion. You understand that the scripture very clearly teaches there is one true God and there is one way to know that true God, and that is through his son. That's it. Everything else 
is a rebellion against that revelation of God. All other religion is false. It is anti-God. The Old Testament is permeated by such worship. But here's what's interesting. Those gods don't really exist. The idols that people worship, all religions other than the worship of the true God who's revealed himself in the scripture and in his son, it's false. It doesn't exist. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part one of his series, Two Gates, One Decision. Tom will have part two for you on our next program. Join us then, won't you? Well, we'd like you to know that Tom has a new book out titled The God Who Hears, a book of pastoral prayers. It features 31 scripture readings and accompanying pastoral prayers. Tom's book is available for purchase right now online at thewordunleashed.org. As always, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.